If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. This is Peter Wood, author of Wrath, America Enraged. You're listening to Hold the Right Radio with Pete Pace. And welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the radio show that you tell us you like so much, which has been around more than a decade, A Call to Rights, with me, your host, Steve Cates. Alter Rights talks about many things, about our Constitution, our Bill of Rights, American exceptionalism, as we delve into so many of these topics today. But the main theme of the radio show has and always will continue to be this, always refuse to be a victim, because a victim is simply someone with no options. Always fight back legally and responsibly. And today, ladies and gentlemen, as we move down this particular archive of the Alter Rights radio show, the brand new edition today, in just one moment, We'll be introducing our special guest today, Peter Wood, author of a brand new Encounter Books book entitled Wrath, America Enraged. Peter Wood is president of the National Association of Scholars and author of the new book Wrath, America Enraged, as well as last year's acclaimed 1620, a critical response to the 1619 Project. A former professor of anthropology and college provost, he's the author of several books about American culture, including diversity the invention of a concept, and a bee in the mouth, anger in America now. He joins us here on the Call to Rights Radio Show as we talk about the brand new book. And some of the backstory reads like this. Anger now dominates American politics, but it wasn't always so. Happy Days are Here Again was FDR's campaign song in 1932. By contrast, candidate Kamala Harris's 2020 campaign song, Work That, Let Them Get Mad, They're Gonna Hate Anyway. Both the left and the right now summon anger as the main way to motivate their supporters. After the election, both sides became even more indignant. The left accuses the right of insurrection, and the right accuses the left of fraud. This is a book about how we got here, about how America changed from a nation that could be roused to anger but preferred self-control to a nation permanently dialed to 11. With that, Peter Wood, good afternoon and welcome to A Call to Right. Uh, good afternoon, and thank you for having me. A distinct pleasure, sir. And reading your book, I find this most interesting, as we recommend many of the books that we get from these great authors to go to the top of the Call to Rights bookshelf. But in simplicity, if you don't mind going back in the time tunnel here, describe to us a bit about a previous book called The Bee in the Mouth, and describe to the audience, and of course we encourage them to get a copy of it, what then was the main theme of that particular book, and how does it also translate and relate to today's topic about wrath. Well, that book came about as a result of a, a book before that titled Diversity, the Invention of the Concept. While I was working on diversity, I began to run into a lot of people who seemed to be really angry, but I was having trouble figuring out what they were angry over. Uh, they just seemed to be angry, angry for anger's sake. Um, so I, I pulled on that thread for a while and uh, began to delve into the psychological literature and 
historical literature. And what I came up with, which is the substance of the book, was that there had been a kind of sea change in the American temperament. For centuries, Americans had uh, urged on each other and attempted to maintain in their own lives a pretty strong ethic of self-control. The angry person was often seen as foolish, or at least the person who got angry too often or stayed angry too long or became angry too frequently. And that individual then uh, began to experience a lot of social friction. So there were genuine sanctions against being uh, too angry. That began to change after World War II. Uh, two sort of benchmark things were the growing popularity of Freudian psychoanalysis, which informed people that bottling up their anger was going to come back at them in the form of neurosis. And another thing about the same time was the importation of European existentialism, which was teaching that the authentic life is one in which you are led by your passions and anger in particular. Well, these things kind of came together in the 1950s, not a time we usually think of as especially angry, but there was an angry fringe, um, on, mainly on the coast, but it was uh, the sort of thing that gave rise to, for example, uh, the very popular uh, book, A Catcher in the Rye, which is yeah. about a pissed-off young man who wanders around New York for a few days, calling everybody he meets a phony. Um, turns out at the end of the book that He's actually talking to his shrink. And so you get both the existentialist anger and the psychoanalytic anger wrapped up in what was one of the most popular books of its time. Uh, this is also the era in which uh, figures like Allen Ginsberg are writing uh, poems in which they denounce in really vulgar language their hatred of America. Uh, being angry was a, a style that suited the beat generation. It was also catching on in other places. Sure. Uh, it turned out that anger was almost the perfect uh, match to the emerging protest movements. Well, of course, there have been protest movements way before that, but suddenly uh, the anger that could be summoned to bring real energy to a protest movement had a kind of uh, validation in uh, the opinion of the uh, cultural elite. So. All this was brewing in the 1950s. I'm not going to try to retell the whole story since, but it broke out in, in big ways in the 1960s and then just grew and grew and grew. And that's what the book is about. It was written in the middle of uh, uh, Bush's presidency when a new version of this new anger, as I call it, proud, self-righteous anger, flamboyant anger, had uh, gripped the imagination of the American political left. So uh, we suddenly had this cultural phenomenon translated into politics. Very interesting. I want to let our, remind our audience out there, special guest today, is always here on the Call to Rights radio show. But today, indeed, ladies and gentlemen, something I think goes right to the core of some of the basic problems that I think are rampant across America and maybe all the places around the world. Our special guest is Peter Wood, the president of the National Association of Scholars and author of the book I'm holding in my hands here, a brand-new Encounter Books book entitled Wrath, America Enraged. He joins us from his offices in New York City. Peter, just describe to us, in case people may not really have a firm grip on this, you're an anthropologist by training. 
what's interesting and looking at how social things happen between different peoples and cultures and where we all came from way back in the cosmic soup. But I wondered if you could just give us a simple explanation, in your opinion, of what the difference is between anger and wrath. And from what I'm reading in your book, obviously, anger can transmute to the concept of wrath. Talk a little bit about that, if you would. Well, um, I say early on in the book that the difference between anger and wrath is anger says, how dare you? And wrath says, I'm going to obliterate you. The, the difference is partly one of intensity, but it's also partly one of whether you are entertaining a hope for reconciliation at the end of this. Anger, even when it's red hot, usually expects there's going to come a time when I'm no longer angry, that we will have settled things one way or the other. Wrath no longer expects that. It just says, uh, you have gone so far that I have no choice now but to do whatever I can to um, obliterate you, just to yes. take you out. That, um, that sometimes results in literal obliteration. People shoot each other, or they do terrible things. Um, I think in the political realm, it means we can no longer compromise. There is no ground here for us to find a common ground at all. And mm -hmm. to that end, it's a, a winner-take-all situation. That, I think, describes where we are in America right now. The, the left and right see no place at all in which they can reasonably meet. The people who call for a, a middle ground seem kind of weak and foolish, that they don't truly understand what either side is saying. Um, there is no real compromise between communism and the free market. There is no real middle ground between deciding that we're going to be a nation with borders or a nation without borders. Um, that's the, the place where we've ended up, and it's clearly not just conceptual difference. These are passionately sure. felt the differences, uh, deep and powerful resentments on both sides, and out of those resentments stems a, a willingness to uh, set aside the usual restrictions on uh, how we behave towards people we disagree with. Well, Peter, I think this book, again, should be in every college curriculum and maybe even down into the high school level because this is where I think all this education needs to, or the, the whole story that needs to be told here, even maybe even in younger ages, uh, need to understand this. And even if this book was maybe written for a more mature audience, age-wise, wouldn't you, wouldn't you agree? I mean, this should be taught, and I have to ask you this as a professor, have you taught this specific subject as a topic in a classroom situation? And, and, and forgive me if I'm not picking up on that, but from an anthropologist's view, has that been one of your classes that you actually teach, this very subject of wrath? You know, it, it has not. Um, by the time I got seriously interested in this topic, mm -hmm. I was already uh, on my way out of higher education. I spent 25 years in the classroom, sure. and I since moved over into the the nonprofit world, I do a different kind of work now, which sure. uh, frees me. I am no longer having to worry about being canceled by uh, uh, administrators or fellow faculty members who dislike what I have to say. So uh, you're talking to a free spirit here. Uh, I, I like have that. not <laughs> had too many opportunities to go back in front of students simply because I'm now known to be uh, outside the reservation. Yes, sir. Talk to us about this. I mean, in your book, the many questions that you provide us, but I like to go deeper than that because when you read these books, 
you know, I pick up some main themes out of every author that I get, and that's what I think every author tries to do. Maybe not every single point, but some, you know, resonate better with me. But the concept here, I want to talk about this new anger. And if you could define that a little better for this audience, because I find that most fascinating, that anger was anger. But let's say in World War II, when there was anger, how do we describe now today in our, you know, post-Trumpian world here with Biden in charge and the Democratic Party here in this country? And I'm not trying to attack them. I mean, how would you then describe the definition of new anger and how does it differentiate from the old? Well, uh, the simplest way to define new anger is that it's show-off anger. Mm-hmm. The, the anger of times past always had about it a certain holding back, a degree of reservation or even slight shame that uh, being angry meant I'm no longer in control. But um, with what I call new anger, that uh, element of hesitation is completely gone. People are celebrating their anger. They see it as empowering, as authentic, as um, bringing them applause. So you can perform anger now with the expectation that at least some of the people around you will clap and cheer. Um, That is something new in America. Um, That kind of anger in which you win the uh, support of your friends and uh, try to... uh, uh, take the breath away from your foes, uh, a competitive sport of anger is what America has come to. Now, that might not sound to listeners as something that is especially new. Um, yes. If not, then I suggest a, uh, spending a few hours and going back and looking at uh, movies of the uh, pre-1950s era uh, think of Gary Cooper at High Noon or any sure. number of movies in which the lead character suffers insults and assaults, but uh, pulls himself back, refuses to engage until he's just pushed to the limit, and then he'll react but in a controlled way. That's, that's gone. That's no longer our image of the hero or the protagonist. Now we go for the person who comes out guns blazing from the the very start. This is um, uh, a change in American temperament. Uh, It doesn't come automatically or overnight. That is, people have to be raised to uh, expect that expressive anger is a virtue and not a vice. And we have spent a couple generations now teaching children to express themselves rather than to hold back their feelings, uh, we are reaping the reward of that kind of social valuation of our emotions. Uh, if you think anger is what you need to do in order to be a full grown-up person, you're probably going to get a lot more anger in your social life, and that's where we are. Well, anger, obviously, from the physiological side, I mean, you and I would both agree, and I'm sure every person listening to this particular show Anger is never good for your health anyway. I mean, there's never any doctor that I've ever met, and I don't think you would doubt this, that having anger in your system can theoretically do what? Cause stroke, heart attack, and all that. We know that. But again, ladies and gentlemen, Peter Wood is our very special guest here. Great to have him here talking about a subject that really needs, in my opinion, Peter, to be taught at the mid-levels and highest levels, and I think maybe through this particular program and what we find in your book, a brand new book from Encounter Books, Ladies and gentlemen, you can get that book wherever good books are sold. Encounterbooks.com is where this is archived. The book entitled Wrath, America, Enraged. 
But I want to go on to something here. You contend here that some wrath, you believe, is justified, and I'm reading this. The popular will of Americans, this is what you're saying, has been thwarted by a combination of careerist elites, progressive ideologues, an unprincipled press, and a business class more attuned to global opportunities than to domestic flourishing. Flourishing. That's powerful stuff, my friend, and I would have to agree with you. Uh, I would find it hard for anybody, unless they're living in a cave, to really disagree with many of the things that you just stated. Please, please continue and describe in detail uh, how you believe some wrath is also justified. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. Well, I have written this book in a more political mode than any of my other scholarly work. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm engaged myself in that I found the a mischief that was part of the 2020 election uh, very upsetting, but even more upsetting that we couldn't talk about it without being accused of uh, being complicit in the big lie or something like that. Um, so whatever evidence there was that uh, the balloting was not uh, completely on the up and up, uh, couldn't even be talked about. And that shutting down of public discussion, to me, was a, uh, a critical factor in thinking I was no longer going to be the aloof observer. I was going to be some kind of participant in this. And then came December, the January 6th riot in the uh, Capitol, uh, promptly declared by the mainstream press to be an insurrection with the Democrats in, in one voice uh, declaring that, yes, this was an attempt to overthrow the government, um, which made no immediate sense or any long-term sense either. That if someone's going to up, overthrow the government, they would at least show up with weapons and a plan uh, rather than an unruly crowd that uh, wandered around and snapped selfies and in a few cases got into shoving matches. Um, there was no real violence to speak of, except violence perpetrated by the Capitol Police. And yet, for all of this, we saw people uh, thrown into prison for 9, 10, 11 months, um, oftentimes without serious charges against them, uh, and then manhandled and brutally treated in prison. That didn't sound like America to me. Um, Agreed. And this, of course, comes on top of a whole lot of other things that have been occurring in the country that um, upset many millions of people. I'm not going to say they're just Trump voters who got upset mm-hmm. by this. I think a lot of us felt deeply grieved about how the pullout from Afghanistan was handled, or deeply grieved about what's happened on our southern border, uh, the unleashing of inflation and a kind of heedless attempt to rejigger all our elections in the future by allowing the kinds of things that occurred in 2020 to be uh, imposed across the whole country by the will of Congress. Well, that hasn't happened yet, but not for lack of trying. Um, These things add up to a sense, I believe, among kinds of people I'm talking to about it, uh, that 
we no longer have a self-governed country that the consent of the uh, people to have a government has been overridden by an elite that is much more interested in maintaining power for itself, and that these are matters that I think rightly induce a sense of uh, almost despair among people that's been modified somewhat by the results of the elections in Virginia and some other places in the last month. Um, But we are, um, nonetheless, I'd say at a stage feeling that something terrible has happened to our ability to be a self-governed country and that something must be done about that. Now, um, that's, that's more or less the psychological position or the state that I'm in when I wrote the book and sure. continues to be um, foremost how I think we are faced as a country now with the prospects of going forward. We have, um, in my view, a, uh, a deeply incompetent president, president, one who probably is suffering from psychological uh, frailty and, and worse, uh, along with a kind of shadow government behind him, which is using his uh, perilous state opportunity to impose all sorts of rules by uh, mere fiat rather than by the actual right. process. Couldn't of agree more, government. Peter. Yeah, couldn't agree more. And I think as, as we move forward in the interview here, we only have a few more minutes with you today, but this is fascinating to me, and I'd like to spend more time with you in the future on this in a different format, but that we can talk about that privately. But for the people listening today, I just want to remind everybody, our producer here, Richard Dugan of radio station KZSBA in 1290 in Santa Barbara, California. We appreciate his time in helping making this all happen. But for all of you out there in the Call to Rights audience, these are the things that they would be asking if they were doing this in a live format on the air. But this is pre-recorded, ladies and gentlemen. You know, you write a response to the 1619 Project, and I just wanted to see, you know, shame on people if they don't know too much about this, but not so much shame that they can't learn. Give us the main tenant that you disagree with in the 1619 Project, because I think this has, you know, we, we could spend hours talking with you about this, and your response, of course, as the opposite side of the equation. But what's the biggest uh, offensive thing that you find in the 1619 Project that uh, listeners would need to know about? Well, if I had to say just one thing, I would say the 1619 Project paints a false picture of American history by treating slavery absolutely central mm-hmm. to every development that has ever occurred, political, economic, religious, or otherwise. Um, but if we want to take it down to basic facts, uh, slavery didn't begin in Virginia in 1619. It was a worldwide institution before that. Mm-hmm. It happened that there was no slavery in Virginia, and slaves brought there by pirates in that year actually were set free. Um, they served as indentured servants and then were uh, given their own freedom and went on to integrate with the rest of the people in Jamestown. Yes. Uh, the 1619 Project claims that the American Revolution was fought by the patriots in order to sustain the, issue, the uh, institution of slavery. Uh, there's not a shred of historical evidence that supports that claim. It's preposterous that the New York Times' uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones not only laid it out in her original 100-page uh, uh, statement in the New York Times magazine, but has now produced 
a 600-page book in which she repeats it. So there's no backing down on the part of these people. Uh, they also claim, for example, that Abraham Lincoln fought the Revolutionary War for racist reasons. He wanted to exile uh, American blacks abroad, and that the war was fought really for the purpose of segregation and exclusion. Uh, he says, or she says, that the uh, uh, blacks have fought all their battles alone over the course of centuries. That, too, is preposterous. Our abolitionist movement was largely a white one. The civil rights movement was thoroughly integrated, and so on. Um, but in any case, uh, the, the 1619 Project is a kind of long, long list of falsehoods, errors, sure. uh, not accidental, but deliberate, because they're there to support uh, a uh, direct political line to the idea that uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones wants to see billions of dollars in reparations paid to blacks, and she needs to soften up the American public with a strong sense of guilt to achieve this political goal. So it's yeah. a con. It's an effort to trick people into believing something is true, which is just not true. Well, I'm glad there are people like yourself out there, Peter. And on this radio show, just to give you a little background, for 15 years we've been talking with the audience, not at the audience, about American exceptionalism, our Constitution, our Bill of Rights, and always stressing to this audience that we are a constitutional republic, and not just to continue to hear the blather of democracy, democracy, democracy. And I'm sure with what I understand from what I've read in your book, and I think I can get the picture, that you'd be obviously more right-side conservative towards the Constitution and the rule of law. My big fear here, and I just wanted you to comment on this as we close out the show in just about a few minutes here, but you're always welcome back here, sir, in the live version where we can get the callers involved, too, is that this. I'm, I'm concerned and not, not worried about groups like Black Lives Matter. I have not a racist bone in my body, and I'm sure you do not either. It's just that what's here, what we're hearing here, and I look deep into this, the allegations of Maoist and, you know, very, very, very communist tendencies uh, for violence and things of this nature. I mean, it's just going to be to the point where, where people in America obviously are going to reach a tipping point, and I hope that their anger doesn't go to wrath, because it seems like, in many people's estimation, God forbid if we were to even get into a secondary thing called a civil war, I wondered what you might advise people out there. What can the average citizen do, hearing all this blather that comes from mainstream media, about how everybody on this side of the equation, if you're more of a conservative constitutionalist, that we're either racist or we're of some foreign country, they're a foreign planet. I mean, it's, it's concerning to everybody. What, what can average people do to protect themselves from what seems to be coming? Well, there are a number of things that can be done. I would start by saying, be as politically engaged as you possibly can be. That is, your mm -hmm. parent, go and show up at school board meetings. If you're being ordered by state authorities to do things that you think are wrong or dangerous, Refuse to do them. Civil disobedience is part of this. Um, I, I strongly urge you to exercise your Second Amendment right. Be armed and, and know how to use your arms. That's Not what we that I would here. ever want to incite any kind of violence, but I think having an armed citizenry is a powerful protection against usurpation by authorities that mean to misuse their power. We are a constitutional republic. Know the laws. Obey the laws at least obey the laws that you know are grounded in due judicial process and are not just usurpations by people who want to steal power for themselves. Um, 
those are the, the basic things to do. Um, you've got to be smart and you've got to be able, and those two things go together. Sure. And these words, Peter, are very important. I want to thank you so much for being part of this Call to Rights episode. Again, ladies and gentlemen, thank you, the listeners, for being with us for over 15 years. As you've heard me say many times, and proud to say it, we talk about our Constitution, our Bill of Rights, that we are a constitutional republic. And what uh, Peter Wood is talking about here, he's not looking to inflame us. He's looking to say, hey, there's the story and the connectivity between anger and wrath. And I believe from what he's saying in the book, and you'll get the message loud and clear if you do get a copy of this book. Again, entitled Wrath, America Enraged, Peter W. Wood. He's the author. Go to EncounterBooks.com. Or for that matter, right, Peter, wherever good books are sold, and I'm sure all over Amazon, this book is found at the speed of light. I want to thank you, sir, for being part of this radio show, and I uh, hope you'll come back in a time when we do many town hall forums, and I think your conversational topic today belongs uh, equally up on a giant Zoom screen with an audience of people that I'm sure would like to even ask questions. So if you'd mind considering that in the future, we'd love to have you as part of the team. I'd be happy to do that. Thank you. Thank you very much. That concludes this interesting edition, as always, at least not in my mind, but in your mind, as you tell us you like the radio show so much. Again, I want to thank our producer, Dr. D. Richard Dugan, radio station KZSB, that's AM 1290, in that beautiful hamlet of Santa Barbara, California, doing the honors of producing this particular episode. And I always remind everybody out there, always remember this, refuse to be a victim, because what? A victim is simply someone with no options. Again, always think yourself, ladies and gentlemen, because what, is, what happens if you don't? You become a victim. A victim is simply someone with no options. Always fight back legally and responsibly. We'll see you next week on A Call to Rights. As we wish each and every one of you the best of the holiday season. A happy Hanukkah, a Merry Christmas, and happy holidays. And again, thank you, Peter Wood, for being our special guest here on A Call to Rights with me, Steve Gates. If you'd be so kind enough, sir, to stay on the line as we go to the heartbreak here on the radio show. Thank you, Peter Wood. Thank you. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.